Written on the pages of the great book of nature lies a truth so profound that it has beckoned men and women throughout the ages to seek its wisdom. We will continue this quest and study many stories of humanity as we search for this light. On this journey, we will examine philosophy, religion, and science to uncover the hidden mysteries behind myth and legend using the symbols of universal Freemasonry. Welcome to Legends of the Craft. Welcome back to Legends of the Craft. I'm here with my guest host, Patrick Alessandra. We'll be discussing today the sevenfold nature of man and its association with the seven officers of a regularly constituted lodge. Um, I've invited Patrick on the show today because he was raised a theosophist uh, deep within the studies of Alice Bailey. And this topic is a, a very occult topic. It's a very spiritual topic as we try to um, align the various officers to spiritual principles. So, welcome to the show, Patrick. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Brother Matthias. Uh, this is a subject that's always been interesting to me, so I'm looking forward to the, exploring this with you. I think it's a great subject because for a lot of Masons that I've encountered out in the world, they look at Lodge and they're like, well, what's the spiritual essence uh, of these officers? Why do we have junior deacons and senior deacons and outer guards? Uh, why... Are they at their various locations and lodge, and what do they represent? And I believe that the um, sevenfold nature of man, this idea that every human being has seven bodies or seven natures, explains the Masonic Lodge and the process of initiation, passing, and raising perfectly. What do you think? I really like this concept because, as you've said, the idea of the Masonic Lodge as a human being is... A great way to give sort of meaning or access the meaning that is present in these officers. So we look at these officers and they're each fulfilling a separate and unique role. And it seems to me very easy to compare that to the role of the parts of ourselves and to link that to the theosophical concept of what the parts of ourselves are. That's a great point, Brother Patrick. I think it's very useful when we're in Lodge, if we look at the various officers, not as a rank to be obtained, but as a principle to be achieved. So when we're saluting various officers, we're not saluting the people that are playing those roles. We are saluting the principles that are behind those roles. And the principles within ourselves that are behind those roles. So ultimately, we're having a conversation with ourselves. We're having an uh, a ritual with ourselves when we look at the ritual in that fashion. I agree completely. Going back to the idea of the first degree where we are supposed to know ourselves, seeing these lodge officers as parts of ourselves and trying to relate to them is, I would say, almost essential to completing our work in the first degree. Well, what's masonry if we don't try to dissect and break down the various elements of the ritual to gain a, uh, to, to gain a deeper understanding of ourselves otherwise the ritual can easily become a very silly thing when it doesn't mean anything and it's just some arbitrary officers doing arbitrary actions then it's why do we even do it yeah then people stop taking it seriously but if we take the second to sit down and think about it and think about the various levels of meaning we can extract it's suddenly a much richer experience for us than it would be normally so let's get into it uh there are 
typically in most Masonic rituals, three principal officers and four assistant officers. The three principal officers are the Worshipful Master or the Right Worshipful Master, depending on the jurisdiction you're in, the Worshipful Senior Warden, and the Worshipful Junior Warden. Those three rule a lodge. The assistant officers are two deacons, a senior and junior, and two guards, an inner and outer guard. Now, in some jurisdictions, like in continental Europe, uh, these officers can be different. But rituals that derive from England, from the Grand Lodge of England, typically have these seven officers, and you need all seven officers in order to conduct an initiation, a passing, and a raising. No lodge is regular without these seven officers. And sometimes this is depicted on the tracing boards of the first degree as seven stars, sometimes the Great Dipper, uh, near the moon. The number seven is a very symbolic number, especially in theosophy. There's seven uh, principles of man, as we're going to talk about today. There's seven rays, which can also be tied to that. And there's seven planes on which we have our existence, which can also be tied to that. So the number seven is... I think, a very meaningful number for the Lodge to have in order to be perfect. I think in almost every religious tradition, the number seven um, is very important. Even in Christianity, there are seven seals in the story of Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible. Um, We have seven chakras, seven classical planets. Uh, There's just so many sevens that are so important to us. And so to believe that man is divided into... A sevenfold nature, I don't think, is beyond reasonability. Now, I think you know a little bit about the history, right, Brother Patrick? Yes. So this concept that man has a sevenfold nature, which uh, Blavatsky made sort of popular or brought into the common awareness in the 19th century, actually goes back a lot further. There are two main threads that this comes from. First, there's Platonism, which holds that there are seven planetary spheres that we pass through as we leave this physical world, as we die, each corresponding to a part of ourselves that is tested as pure or not, which I think is a very interesting concept. And the second thread that leads us to the seven principles of man is Mahavadan Hinduism, which teaches that, among other things, you have to attain enlightenment through knowledge. And one of the things you have to have knowledge of is these seven centers or wheels that are the essence of a man. So let's associate these Platonic, these Hindu ideas right back into masonry. Well, I think first we should list what these ideas are so that people have a conception of it. I think it's a great idea. So we're not going to use the Hindu terms. I think that can be too complicated. Um, The idea is that these seven bodies start with the most dense of bodies, which is first our physical body. Uh, Then you have an emotional body. Uh, Some call that the astral body. Um, On the third level, you have the vital body or or the energy that animates the emotions and the physical body. On the fourth level, we have the body that constitutes our instinct. It's also our pure desires, our aspirations in life. You could also call that the lower soul. Some of them do. Oh, that's a great point. What are the other three, Brother Patrick? So the higher three principles are concrete and abstract mind, which are one principle, but it's two sides of one principle. And that's what creates manifestation. That's how we end up existing in this world. Then above that, we have the spiritual body, sometimes called the intuitive body, which is 
sort of more nebulous, but closer to the absolute truth. And then the highest principle, the deepest part of ourselves, is a spark of pure consciousness, which some call the real soul. So let's start back at the bottom. Let's start with the physical body. And the interpretation we're we're about to give here is our interpretation. I think many people would agree with us, but there's certainly other ways of looking at the seven bodies and the seven officers of the lodge. This is by no means a doctrine or a dogma um, that is professed in our organization or other organizations that kind of follow the same um, line of thought. So the physical body, which is the body you can feel. Um, it's what you recognize as yourself when you look in a mirror. This body, I think, is related to the outer guard. And I believe that for several reasons. The outer guard is outside the door of the lodge. Uh, the outer guard holds the lodge. It's what protects the lodge. Um, and you can look at the lodge as a body. So it's the outer representation of this body. It's what you can see. It's what you can touch. I really like that. And as, um, as the outer guard, the, the body allows sensations and ideas to penetrate to the inner bodies. It's with our physical senses that we interact with this world. So just like visitors need to be uh, need to confront the outer guard before entering the lodge. Outside influences need to confront our physical body before entering into ourselves. And very similar to um, cellular biology, the, the a cell has an outer membrane, and its only job is to let things into the cell, things that are good for it, not bad for it. So I think very much when we look at the outer guard as the highest aspiration of a physical body, or the or the or the the highest kind of degree of development of a physical body, we can see it as being the gateway towards having the perfect body. Watching what we intake in terms of food, uh, alcohol, drugs, the outer guard always has to be present within our lives to make sure that we don't overindulge, that we don't succumb to our passions, that we respect the body as a temple. And so what we put in it is extremely important. And I think what we put in it can either destroy us or it can purify us. The outer guard with the drawn sword should always be there when we're living our lives from morning until dusk, making all those vital decisions because if our body's off, then our mind's off and then our spirit's off, our soul's off. I think that allegory uh, gives us a little bit of insight into why the early theosophists were so insistent on vegetarianism, on not drinking, on not doing drugs. Because even though the physical body is the lowest of all the bodies, it is the gateway to the higher bodies. So it's important to be pure. It's not the only thing that matters. Corruption can go from the inner to the outer or the outer to the inner, but it's a necessary guardian. And I think when you look at theosophy, you know, Blavatsky kind of had the idea that it's okay to have meat as long as it's not, you're not eating it just because it tastes good and you just need to eat it all the time. You know, you're supposed to eat it sparingly or on necessary occasions or based on diet. I think the later theosophists turned it into sort of a dogma that if you eat any meat, then you're lowering your vibrations. And I tend to agree with Blavatsky that I don't necessarily think vegetarianism is a necessity for all people. But we certainly shouldn't just be eating meat all the time. I mean, it, it does affect us to a certain degree. They've shown that scientifically. And to a second degree, we need to care about 
all the animals that we kill on Earth. So I think there, there has to be some level of consciousness there, but, but not to the point of extremism. I agree completely, and I think this idea is an excellent segue to our next officer and our next body, the emotional body, because it is those primitive desires for just, I want as much meat as possible that I think the theosophists were trying to cramp down on. So could why don't you tell us a little bit more about the connection between the inner guard and the emotional body or the astral body? Yeah, so the lodge has two guards, an outer guard and the inner guard. Um, and again, going back to our analogy of the cell, uh, there's an outer membrane and there's an inner membrane. So the inner membrane is what allows things out of the cell. And as we just discussed, the outer membrane is what lets things into the cell. So in the same way, that's how it works in a Masonic Lodge. The inner guard lets people out of Lodge, and the outer guard lets people into Lodge. And I think associating the emotional body or the astral body with the inner guard makes so much sense because um, what we let out of ourselves is critical. And that opens up an interesting point of correspondence because this emotional body, this astral body, is not the originator of these feelings that comes from a higher body the instinctual body this body just lets them in to our world so i think that's an excellent correspondence with the inner membrane of the cell letting things out well how often do we speak without thinking how often do we hurt other people with our words by insulting them or insinuating things. We need an inner guard to guard our words and our speech and our thoughts to make sure those harmful impulses don't leave us. They don't do any damage. So another great correspondence, inner guard and the emotional body or the inner membrane. But both guards are doing essentially the same job. They're guarding a portal. And they need to work as a team for either of them to be effective. The outer guard has to guard against external threats and the inner guard has to guard against ourselves and back to back as a unit otherwise we break down and the lodge breaks down so let's move on to the next two officers which is the senior and junior deacon Um, specifically the junior deacon represents in my opinion the vital body or the energy that sustains the the physical body uh, or even all four lower bodies. Um, I think the junior deacon represents this because the junior deacon is the guide of the candidate when they are entered into Freemasonry. They provide the energy, the connection. They bring the neophyte from the door of the temple into the lodge and around the various journeys and to the altar so they can make their obligation. And I think in this context... It's what energizes the entire system. I can see it because as this, as this guide is going around the lodge, taking you from point to point, as you said, how many times during the day do we just not have the energy to do something that we would otherwise do? How vital is that energy to us achieving anything, let alone the initiation, which I think represents an expansion of consciousness? So... This, this energy, this almost physical energy, but not quite just physical, is essential to completing, to completing this expansion. And I think this is perhaps one of the reasons why you need to be physically able to be initiated into Freemasonry. I like that point very much, and it made me think of the following. Because 
this this vital body the the hindu word is prana um and you know prana is this energy that we intake and we give out according to the hindus and i think this ties back into the guards because the guards are guarding what comes in and out of the lodge well what are we bringing in and out of the lodge the brethren but especially the neophytes you know what you know a cell to go back to that analogy is bringing in raw materials so that i can it can create energy for the rest of the body and so this is like building material right so the junior deacon is is the one conveying this material um the neophyte the candidate to freemasonry which is being brought in to be harnessed to create an energy for the lodge not only for the candidate themselves but for all the brethren that are convened in that meeting you're right the junior deacon is the focal point of that ceremony it's where we've all concentrated our energy our prana our attention on this one officer for this singular purpose which benefits the whole speaking about it being energy it reminds me of a correspondence between prana and blood that's often drawn these higher aspects have individual correspondences within our body and blood bears this energy from place to place it needs to go and that leads us to the senior deacon which is the instinctual body it's the higher desires the aspirations of a human being not quite those aspirations of divinity but our aspirations in a very mundane and earthly way. So the senior deacon is another type of guy, not for the initiation, but for other degrees. And so uh, where the neophyte becomes an apprentice, they must continue their journey. And thus this, these aspirations, these higher desires take place to move the apprentice into being a craftsman and eventually a master mason. So in the ceremony of opening in every meeting, this is the officer that goes to the center and with the IPM's help, grabs the fire of the torch, uh, the eternal fire, the fire of knowledge, as I like to think of it, or in this case, I think the fire of idealism from the higher bodies, from that torch and distributes it to the brethren in three key segments. So that's the function of this body and this officer is to take the highest and make it accessible to the lowest, make the lowest march to the highest. Now, you know, in theosophy, this is a body that is very easily corrupted with base desires and lower instincts, which if they are allowed out into the world through the emotional body and physical body can be very destructive. But that's a testament, I think, to the power of this principle and this officer, that it can so be so destructive when misused. But that brings back the guards. If they're doing their job, then you don't have to worry about that corruption. It's only when the guards fail that that corruption is able to take place in the hearts and minds of men. Yes, each of the seven principles has a check on the others. Now, if one principle is persistently failing in its duty, it will destroy the body and the lodge. However... The other principles are built in such a way that if they maintain their duty, they can prevent a collapse of an integrity of the system. The two guards guard and the two deacons are the ones that convey and move the energy of the body, the ideas, the aspirations of the body. So let's now move on to the three higher principles. We've established these four lower principles that can be looked on as a square, you know, a perfect square. 
representing our physical nature. These three higher principles can be seen as a triangle on top of that square, uh, representing our more higher or spiritual ideas uh, pointing upward towards heaven. These are our more abstract principles, and unlike the, the lower four, these ones are stationary, like the officers in the lodge who represent them. And the lowest of the three, or I should say the first of the three, is the worshipful junior warden, who represents the mind, which exists in two parts, concrete and abstract, but as one unity that allows us to manifest things in this world through planning. And what is the junior warden? But the emblem of beauty represented by the Corinthian column, right? So I think this idea works out perfectly because the junior warden rules at the noonday, at high 12, and is symbolically supposed to be in charge of the workmen in their day-to-day labors. And that must be done with intelligence, with understanding. You need the concrete mind to collect facts, knowledge, but then you need an abstract mind to be able to connect those ideas, to synthesize them, and to put them to work so that you can create something. Let's never forget that the collection of facts for the sake of collecting facts is a complete dead end and gets you absolutely nowhere. Absolutely. And another point with the Worshipful Junior Warden, which you touched on a little bit, is this officer brings us from refreshment to labor and labor to refreshment again, just like our thoughts do. If our mind is on our work, we are productive. If our mind is on other pursuits, we are not. So that's the importance of this principle, is it sets the tone for the entire labor. That's an excellent point. And to add to that, Brother Patrick, I would say that the Worshipful Junior Warden, um, which in most rituals represents Hiram Abiff, who was the principal architect on the building of King Solomon's Temple, is an example of somebody with a refined mind, someone that allows their concrete mind to follow the abstract nature, the synthesis of ideas, the innovation and ingenuity necessary to move us forward in life. Otherwise, civilization and society would be stagnant and dead. We need to evolve. And so this, this plane of the manas this lower and higher mind is really an emblem of evolution. To tie this into theosophical theory, you know, not every person has all these principles functioning correctly. It is the mark of uh, a creative and uh, capable person to have this particular principle functioning in harmony with the lower ones. So I think Hiram Biff would be a great example of that as an architect and a creator of such beauty and order. Moving on to the sixth um, level or sixth plane is the Worshipful Senior Warden that represents the spiritual body. Another name for that could be the intuitive body or the contemplative body. It's the setting sun, and that's a place of darkness. Not a darkness of evil, but a darkness where at night you dream, you pray, you meditate, you contemplate on your day's work. It's where you're self-reflective. This is where things can come to you when you're not on guard. The Worshipful Junior Warden is bright like the sun. It's the mind, it's facts, it's construction, it's movement. But at at rest, in the darkness, in the subtler lights, this is when inspiration can strike. This is where 
the ideals come from that the uh that the instinct body the desires aspirations then takes and manifests this is sort of a mystical place where knowledge can originate and i think as the senior warden who instructs the fellow craft in the ways of knowledge but is not necessarily the knowledge himself the worshipful senior warden is a great emblem of this this is the guide to knowledge but not the knowledge itself it's the womb it's the seed under the ground before it sprouts you need darkness in order to reach the light you got to start from that that sort of state of incubation uh, to put it in kind of more scientific terms and so that's what the west is the west is a place that you contemplate and that's how you develop into intuition and intuition is extremely important it is what allows us to have that gut feeling to understand what it is that we're supposed to be doing without facts without necessarily even a direction it's an internal compass that's leading us to fulfill our destiny. And we need a careful ear to listen for it. This is not a loud aspect of ourselves. If the other bodies are disruptive and inharmonious, then this aspect, the intuition, is drowned. You know, In theosophical theory, very, very, very few people have the other bodies in such order to where they can hear this subtle but extremely important voice. Some Masonic symbology on this is that the, the junior warden rules the lodge um, when it's closed, his column's up. And when the lodge is opened and the brethren have been assembled, that column goes down and the senior warden's column goes up. So really, when we're having Masonic meetings, we're under the care of the senior warden. We're, we're, the lodge meeting is a place of incubation. It's a dark place. you know. And listening a lot, to the intuition. Listening to the intuition. And I think a lot of the... Um, ancient lodges used to meet at night, sometimes at midnight, sometimes on the full moon. But there's this idea that the Masonic lodges are in a place of darkness so that the light can can emerge from that darkness. So uh, Masonically speaking, it's tied in very, very easily into this theosophical idea. So the, the two wardens are working with one another. One is the day, one is the night, one is the moon, one is the sun. And you need both. One's not greater than the other. I mean, I think a lot of people say that the moon is not as great as the sun because the sun creates the light. But you need the moon to reflect that light. And the play of the wardens off of each other with, with the right worshipful master, which we'll get into in a second, is what sets the lower four bodies, the lower four officers into motion. Together, intuition and mind, darkness and light, united produces the activity and the plan for the lower officers to follow. Well, think about it. Two guards, two deacons, two wardens. There's this polarity on every level moving up until we get to the worshipful master or the right worshipful master that is a singular idea, which in Hinduism they call that the Atma. And I think as you earlier described, is the divine spark. It's that place of pure consciousness is where it all begins. And it's our aspiration of getting back up to that point in our life this is the point that is truly us this one singular point contains within it all potential all plans all memory it's it exists outside of space and time this is our core and i think that fits very well with the right worshipful master who rules and directs the lodge because the lodge is the ideal man 
in theosophical theory, almost no one has this higher principle actually ruling them. But that is the ideal for which we should all strive. And I think it's very interesting that in Freemasonry, there's this idea that we shouldn't admit anybody that doesn't have the potential, the possibility of becoming a master of a lodge. The idea is that you move through these offices, not because you want the title, not because you want the rank, the accolades, the glory. It's because we're learning these things. Maybe not in their entirety, but at least to some degree that it evokes change within us. And when we sit in the chair of King Solomon, when we become a master of a lodge, we are becoming that pure consciousness. And, and, and having been a master for many years, I can say that in a very small way, I kind of understand that because when I became master, all the members of the lodge were like my children. You know, before, if somebody left or there was a problem, it wasn't my problem. But when I was master, everything was my problem. Every disagreement between the brothers, the ritual work not being done well, it affected me. And I've talked to other masters and they feel exactly the same way. When you're installed in that chair of King Solomon, you bear the responsibility. And I think when we associate the idea of pure consciousness, another word of saying, uh, saying that is pure responsibility. That idea ties excellently into the idea of expansion of consciousness. Your journey you've just described as becoming a master and taking on that responsibility is, I think, the expansion of consciousness within us, which starts with each of the parts of us is sort of doing its own thing. Some might not be working well, but you need to go in there and through understanding, through awareness, make all these parts of yourself work together. And that is what the pure consciousness is. That's the, what the ideal is, is being aware enough to make all the parts of you and all the connections you have with others, even out through the outer guard with other lodges, work well. This ties into the idea of the, the Hindu chakras, you know, these seven energy centers that are invisible within every human being. And when they're perfectly aligned, you have health, you have progress. Uh, when there's imbalance or one is blocked, you have disease, you have corruption. And I know maybe many of our listeners may not believe in the chakras. And I'm not saying that it's a real thing in the sense of it being brick and mortar. They're, I think they're philosophical ideas from a Hindu perspective that there are these seven aspects within each of us. And if they are balanced and if they are working, we will be healthy. You don't have to look at them as a literal thing. You just need to look at them um, as principles. Because to me, it's very obvious that Every single one of us have these principles. And therefore, these seven officers of the lodge are inside of us. And that brings a whole new dimension to Freemasonry. So when you see these officers moving around in an initiation, a passing, a raising, it gives such dimension and color and meaning. It creates a whole new world to examine the ritual and the connections. These seven chakras, as you're saying, are often used as a subject for meditation. But I think you can take that rather than literally trying to stimulate a, a physical energy center, you can interpret that as trying to stimulate an aspect of yourself. You know, it's like the lodge. Sometimes you might have uh, a brother in a position of officer who maybe they don't know the ritual very well or their, their steps are off or there's some, there's some aspect of their performance that needs work. So... What the right worshipful master would do is sit with that brother and work with them, 
just like the consciousness focusing on a particular aspect that is weak to stimulate it into harmony with the other aspects. In masonry, memory work is really important. And I completely believe in that and agree with that idea that's, that's time old. Nevertheless, I don't think an officer is at his best because he's memorized his work. It's when he has internalized his position when you can feel it. And, and, and I've been in ceremonies. I've been in hundreds of ceremonies. And I've been in ceremonies that are letter perfect and felt devoid of energy, of power, of inspiration. And I've been in meetings where the ritual work wasn't that good, but everyone was crying at the end. Everybody was so in tune and so inspired. And I think the difference between those two scenarios is when people embody their position. The memory work's important. It really adds to it. But that's not really the goal. That's not the ultimate understanding of a position. It's when you embody it and then you emit that in your work. You need to do that. You need to have that focus on what your role is and how that interacts with the others. Just like in your body, every part of you needs to be brought in line with all the other parts for you to be healthy and functional and potentially do great things. Because this isn't just about maintaining health. But this idea of these seven concepts is the idea of what makes someone great, is having all these in line, just like there are great lodges and there are lodges that need a lot of work. There are lodges that everyone wants to be a part of and lodges that go years without attracting new members. It's all about the harmony between the officers. That's an excellent point that you just made about um, the lodge being a place of harmony and when it's aligned it attracts people. And that might sound a little hokey, a little new age, and I'm not trying to go that far. It's just been my experience that when a lodge is working well and is harmonious, it brings people in. When a lodge is not harmonious, people are not knocking on the door. Call that a coincidence. Call that fate. Call that magic. I don't know. I'm just saying that's been my experience and experience of a lot of people that I know uh, in different lodges in masonry. You need to have stability and harmony in order to grow i agree completely and i would even go so far as to say that it's particularly the attention of the master that is most important you know in theosophy this is the will this is the consciousness and what it pays attention to grows and what it ignores dies so how involved the master is in the working of the lodges i think is pivotal every officer matters but the master's attention and time and where they choose to put that time is key to a healthy lodge. There are two more aspects I'd like to bring up before we end today's show, and that's the apron and the pointed cubicle stone. It's very interesting that an apprentice is invested with an apron that is a square with a triangle. It literally depicts the sevenfold nature of man, the four and the three pointing upwards towards heaven. And that is just a reflection of the pointed cubicle stone in a two-dimensional uh, point of view, which is a square with a pyramid on top. Both are vital parts of masonry. They're symbols that show us and point us to the highest. It's why on top of every church uh, there's a steeple. Why are we enamored with the pyramids? Why is everything that's great kind of have this point. I mean, you look at the Empire States building, all these things, they're kind of like this this archetype of this sort of concrete square or oblong with sort of a pyramid or triangle on top. 
there's just something that it's inside of our consciousness and it's trying to tell us something. I think it absolutely points to something subconscious within us. Uh, Freud uh, thought it was phallic symbolism, but I would disagree with that. I would say that we are pointing towards the highest, both outside of ourselves, literally pointing towards the sky with these monuments, but also into ourselves, into that one singular point that is really us, that one point that is built all this around us, all of our emotions, our mind, our body, for the purpose of, well, who knows what the purpose of life is? That's one of its great mysteries. Well, I think theosophy would tell us that it's evolution. We're trying to rejoin our source, which is no different story than any major religion. We're trying to go back to the Father. We're trying to go back to the Atma. Different names, different trappings. At the end of the day, it's the same message. And masonry gives us this beautiful ritualistic system, this way for us to enact in drama this evolution. And that's why I'm a Freemason. Because every time I go to Lodge, every time the officers state their positions for the opening, every time there's an initiation, passing and raising, when we close the Lodge, we're enacting this massive drama of creation and destruction. We are embodying the principles of the universe, of the cosmos. We are playing the laws of nature. And that type of work, I think, is vital for our development. And if every Mason could come to understand this spiritual outlook on Masonry, I think the craft could be revitalized and restored and brought back to its inner and deeper meaning of being the guide and the helper of the ignorant. Thank you for listening to Legends of the Craft. This podcast is purely the opinion of brothers Matthias Comcier and Axel Suvari and does not represent the official views of Universal Comasonry. Universal Comasonry is a Masonic order founded on the principles of liberty, equality, and fraternity that admits men and women without distinction of race, religion, or creed. For more information, please visit universalfreemasonry.org.